The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, and Kern County College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you, as per always. Well, good day to you, Stephen. What, what another exciting week on the headlines of American jurisprudence you know <laughs> Mitch, as i can say i, I should say exhausting week i think <laughs> that's true you know as we predicted when we started this venture mitch we probably knew that much of our topics would come from the beltway and come from the executive branch and that has certainly uh proven to be true uh, more than we ever I guess, thought, or in this case, probably feared. Uh, because I, I would have to say that much of the news we're going to talk about today that came out of, of Washington this past week, it, it, this isn't good news for anybody. Uh, this, is, this is turmoil at the core of government that I think is really beginning to distress people of all political persuasions. And yeah, I, yeah. You know, I think that's right, Mitch. And, you know, it's the recent news coverage surrounding President Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey and the president's release of top secret intelligence information to Russian diplomats that have raised questions related to a topic we're going to get into today, and that's going to be obstruction of justice and the limits of presidential authority. And I think it would be good tonic for everyone if we just talked about the topic in general, because uh, I think there's a lot of misnomers about obstruction of justice, and I think I can assist in making some comparisons uh, to state laws that are somewhat uh, in harmony with obstruction of justice, and uh, that's probably a good place to start. Uh, I think you're right, and and we might just frame this again as similar to a topic we dealt with before when when we were grappling with the issue of the attorney general deciding whether or not uh, he should recuse himself from this Russia probe, which again is, is part of the news that we're going to talk about today, we, we spent a, a, a show talking about the legal definition of perjury because there were allegations that the attorney general had perjured himself. And we thought that it was very important that people 
understood the actual legal definition of the word perjury so they could read the news better informed. And, I, and I'd like to do the same thing today. And with your expertise as a long-term prosecutor, I, mean, I can't think of anybody better to help walk us through some of these legal terms that are being thrown around, such as obstruction of justice. I mean, it's not just a concept. It has to tie to actual laws before you can take action, and that's what people are considering. So I think you're exactly right. That's a, a great way for us to approach that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's a good place to start is with some comparisons and perhaps maybe even some analogies. But uh, obviously there is a statutory definition of obstruction of justice, and that's embodied in federal statutes. And we'll get into that because there is several, several means by which uh, a, an accused individual can be charged under some of the federal statutes. But a good way of thinking about obstruction of justice, I think, is officious intermeddling or interference with an intent. And we've talked about the intent element. We've talked about it by using the Latin phrase mens rea, which is really a look into the actor's intent or goal or what some people call motive. Uh, but it really is conduct that is aimed or designed at interfering with some kind of uh, action that's already taken place. So it's it, a, and it has to be an official action, right? It so does. An action, so it does. So the the uh, the position of the actor is an important one. So it does apply to official acts uh, by um, a member who's sworn to uphold certain duties and obviously very significant duties. So, so one of the things you've done, as as you always do so well, Stephen, is is you've identified there are step. You have to step through the elements, the specific elements that make up this concept of obstruction of justice. It's not just one big lump. You really have to do each of those steps that you've said. And and I I may not get all of them again, but uh, I think it's important for people to have this in their mind. So first of all, it has to be an official. It has to be somebody in in this case, somebody who had a a, a duty of some type, either by being the caretaker of information or having a professional responsibility, a, a duty. And then they had to have the intent to actually do something, right? You don't accidentally stumble into obstruction of justice, right? That's right. And then and there has to then be action that you've taken. Actually, do, you can't just intend to do it. You have to actually do something. So there's, it, wouldn't that, is that the active rea? of it that you don't have to yeah, that's, that's, think that you want to do it. You have to actually then do something that would be tied to a statute that makes it illegal. Yeah, that is right. So there's the mental state, which is the look into what uh, the purpose or motive behind the conduct was. And then as you last indicated, there's also the physical act, which is the uh, conduct that demonstrates a willingness to follow through with it. And the other thing that you, you did lay out, Mitch, is the fact that uh, it's people that are in a capacity or a position to actually uh, set out edicts, rules, or to formally be heard on a certain matter that are typically uh, accused and ultimately charged of obstruction of justice. And 
you know, one of the things that's built into the general definition is that it's a frustration of governmental purposes. So the frustration part typically is, is uh, it is supported when there's evidence to show that the bad actor or the accused individual actually has the purpose of thwarting or uh, upsetting some kind of government action purpose. And then, as you last indicated, the physical aspect would be the following through with it. So one of the things, and I, I think your idea to use some analogies is a great one because because it, it gets pretty complicated in this, and the president has certainly made it more complicated. Uh, he's made a couple of statements that would, I think, could very easily confuse people and throw them off track. One is, by virtue of being president, so that goes to the position you talked about, somebody who has the authority to do things, he, he cannot be charged while in office. And therefore, by virtue of being president, none of what you just said could be applied to him. So we'll have to unbundle that piece a bit. And then, and then he'll say, and then he actually had authority to do some of these steps that therefore gives him even greater cover. And so the, the, one of the analogies I heard on the news that I thought just made it easy for me to understand is, is the, the reporter said, you know, you, if you own a laptop and it's your laptop, you can take that laptop and go and throw it into the river. Now, we'll, we'll avoid the issue of environmental problems and littering and things like that. But let's assume for a moment, you can take that laptop and throw it in the river. It is not illegal to do so. However, if the very same laptop has information on it that is subject to an official investigation, and you know it, and you've now thrown the laptop into the river so that the official investigation cannot find that information, that's obstruction of justice. That's a good one, Mitch, and it actually leads right into my um, analogy offer. And in state laws, if an individual individual were to do something like that, let's say hypothetically an accused, someone who's formally accused of a crime, uh, destroyed evidence or tampered with evidence, there are penal code sections that address that issue and set out uh, the elements of that crime. So it's an independent crime. And in the state scenario, that individual could just could be someone accused of a crime. Uh, if we weave back over into obstruction of justice and the status of the bad actor, um, as we said in the lead-in, it would be somebody who's got authority to act, which actually makes it, if you think about it, really more insidious because of the trust factor. Because it's somebody who should be entrusted with important information that then goes on to use it for a nefarious purpose or they actually try to destroy evidence as you share. So, so you're exactly right. Under 18 U.S.C., which is the United States Code, and we've quoted that many times, not 18, but we've quoted the U.S. Code a number of times on our show because that's where you get the federal law. That's the corollary to your state comparison. And under 18 U.S.C., uh, 1512 is where you get many of the federal statutes on obstruction of justice, and they go right down the list that you've just talked about. Witness tampering is obstruction of justice. 
obstruction by violence to actually physically force or threaten somebody. But it doesn't take that. It could be obstruction by intimidation, threat, persuasion, or deception. Uh, it could be obstruction by destruction of evidence, which we were just talking about. Uh, and then there's some just general policies which make it easier for the prosecutors, which are that there's if you generally attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and that would include the investigation as well as the proceeding itself, becomes illegal under the federal law. So and, it really walks and, down and to specificity, each one of those things you mentioned. Yeah, and you know what's interesting, Mitch, about the last one that you referenced, which is set out in 18 U.S., in, in the U.S. Code, the federal statute, and uh, that is series 1512, is that the last uh, language and description that you described and shared is really pretty broad, and it's the one that is probably most or, or most likely to be the focal point when we talk about uh, President Trump's actions uh, or inactions, depending upon which way you want to cast that, uh, it's that language that appears to cast a very wide net and give prosecutors an ability to actually uh, proceed to prosecution. Right, and I think one of the things on that that's been confusing in the current setting is you know, there aren't current charges pending. So someone might listen to this and say, well, how, how can there be obstruction of justice because nothing officially has been done? But it goes back to the definition you used at the very beginning, which is that if somebody knows of an official proceeding, so in this case, it would be if you know of an investigation that's being carried out by the FBI. So that's that's clearly one of the proceedings that are covered by this federal statute. And then you take certain acts that get picked up under the U.S. Code that are illegal as obstruction of justice. That counts. It didn't have to be after there's a court proceeding or after there's a grand jury indictment or after there's actual charges presented. It's, it's broad, as you've talked about. Yeah, that is right, Mitch. And that's one stark difference between a lot of the state statutes, certainly in California, that relate to witness tampering or destruction of evidence. Usually when those crimes are charged uh, in, in states, under state statutes, there is already a prosecution underway or there's police reports already generated and a charging document out. And then, uh, let's say, an accused or a defendant uh, may well go on to engage in that kind of conduct. But you make a good point on one of the major differences, and that is, uh, and I think what you've done there is you've introduced one of the issues that relates to President Trump's uh, potential intermeddling with the uh, Michael Flynn resignation and the fire investigation. Right. Uh, so there's also, let's toss one last one in briefly before we head to the break. There, there's an even broader one there, which talks about contempt of Congress. That, that's tossed into a similar uh, category within the USC, which is that if Congress subpoenas information or asks you to come and testify under oath and you fail to do so, there's the possibility of obstruction of justice in that as well. And that's going to come into play in the next week or so. Yeah, that's yeah, a that's good one. We can pick up on that one after the break. And that deals with uh, deception or deceptive acts aimed at the tribunal. 
You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law over Voice America Radio. We're going out on a short break. We'll be back and we'll continue our discussion on the topic of obstruction of justice. Don't go away. Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information, This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepardmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are talking about obstruction of justice and the various forms of obstruction of justice. And before the break, uh, Mitch, you had introduced one form of obstructing, which relates to obstructing congressional or administrative proceedings. That's right. I think it's important for everyone to remember that it isn't just these aren't just a question of criminal law issues because 
when we're addressing the area of obstruction of justice in the case of the president, there is a different category, of a different status. I, I mentioned earlier that the president has stated that I'm president, none of these laws apply to me. Actually, he said that in a number of contexts, uh, some of which I agree with, some of which I do not. In this case, there is some truth to the fact that as president, uh, he is immune from certain criminal actions while he's in office. That That's a uh, area that has been litigated and uh, it's gotten up to the Supreme Court that takes us back to the Nixon era but there is some categories of that so so the real question is what how does this apply how does any of this apply when you have the president of the United States in question and I, I think what we can help folks understand is these laws do apply as to determining whether Congress could take action against the president. And then in this case, it would have to be an impeachment action. That's the only act that Congress has as far as the balance of power between Congress and the president. So although we're not necessarily talking about the Department of Justice bringing criminal charges against the president for obstruction of justice, the investigation of obstruction of justice, as you've defined it, as you've helped us understand, goes right to the heart of whether it triggers Congress's opportunity to raise the process of impeachment under the question of high crimes and misdemeanors. Yeah. And obstruction of justice has been determined to be one of those crimes that could, and I know there's a lot of maybes here, that could rise to the, to the level of being a high crime and misdemeanor. You know, Mitch, in preparing for today's segment, I knew that there was no way we could avoid using the word impeachment because it, it had to come up, and I like the way that you frame that, uh, because if you look historically, of course, we'd be looking back at the Nixon era and administration, uh, where articles of impeachment were drafted against President Nixon, and um, you're right to point out that there are immunities that, that prevent active uh, charges to be filed against the president, but I think it's inescapable uh, to to we we simply can't avoid the issue of what is public opinion and what is uh, Congress's option or options in connection with uh, the recent activities and actions by President Trump. And and this week we saw the assignment of a, a special counsel through the Department of Justice, and that's another step as part of the process of investigating. I won't even begin to try to untangle all the players in this because you have the Judiciary Committees of the Senate, you have them over in the House, you have the Department of Justice that has investigations. I mean, all of that, I'm a political junkie and I'm confused about how all that really comes down. But at the end of the day, there, it really does come back to the definition you laid out at the top of the show. And, and so that's why I think it's so helpful for us to go through these steps. At the end of the day, there, there's a political decision that can be made, and that's not what we're talking about. There's also the potential of there being a legal definition that comes into play, and that is what we're talking about. And it has to come right now with the, the facts as we know them uh, through this idea of an obstruction of justice. So we talked about 18 USC 
And so, for example, in, in let's pick some of the facts that we think make this worth talking about. So is the president one of the officials that could uh, abuse his power in a way that could could be seen as an obstruction of justice? And I would have to argue, yes, he's going to meet the fundamental qualification. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. 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 Categorically, he would meet that definition. Yeah. And in the case of, let's just look at the, the case of the firing of the FBI director. Did he have, as he's as he's alleged, the right to fire James Comey? And the answer is absolutely yes. No, James Comey worked for him. He he can fire employees within the executive, and the FBI falls within that category, right? Yes. Yeah. So so that part that part works. Now the only problem he have is if the firing was part of what you described, which is. Did he use his authority to intimidate, threat, or persuade an employee on matters that were under investigation? So now that's where it has to go to the second question that everybody's going to have to make their own judgment as the facts roll out of whether they thought the activity, the interaction between the president and the FBI director, somebody who worked for him, somebody who he could hire and fire, actually rose to the level of being an intimidation, a threat, or an effort to persuade the obstruction of an official investigation. Is that a fair way, you think, to, to lay it out? I, I think so, but there's a couple layers there, Mitch, and I noted them while you were explaining that. So what jumps out at me is the motive issue. And I think you're right about the president's uh, authority to terminate somebody that is, in essence, an at-will employee. Uh, However, I think there's a second level of motive behind the uh, firing of James Comey. And that relates to um, whether or not President Trump was also trying to steer or shut down the investigation of former national security advisor Mike Flynn. Uh, right. Good point. So so they are intertwined and 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 I I I like the way you set it up because I know where you were going there. Uh, it it is probably the latter issue that is more alarming and probably more discussion worthy of our topic today because if there is evidence to support that President Trump did try to steer or what I'll say is officious intermeddling uh, with respect to the investigation into Michael Flynn. That's the issue that I think is much more alarming. I think right. And he didn't have to actually fire Comey over it. It's the, the, the important part will be this discussion when we, we wonder why everybody focused right in on the he said, she said type of an argument or in this case, a he said, he said, of the conversation over dinner and the meetings at the White House about the Flynn matter, the words then become very important. And, and this is one, a question I have for you, Stephen, because this is how, what's going to be so difficult about this. Uh, when it's an authority relationship between, in this case, let's say, an employer and an employee, have you dealt with the question of, you know, does it have to be an overt threat, 
either you stop the investigation or you're fired? Or is the very fact that an employer says, this is what I would like to have happen, wink, wink, right? And you're going to do that, right? And, and that's where I think it's going to be a struggle for people to make the connection of, did, did it have to be, you're going to do it or you're fired, and actually I don't think you did it, so you're now fired? Or is the very dis, the, the imbalance of power come into play here? And this is not just with the president and the FBI. This would be any employer with an employee who could be fired if they don't do what the employer wants. Yeah, Mitch. So here's my take on that. I, it does not need to be an overt threat or a patently obvious threat. I think it can be subtle, tacit in nature, uh, and it can very often be framed in just the way you shared there. Wouldn't it be nice if we had this outcome and we're such team players, you're going to play along, right? Uh, I, I think that is probably enough support. And I think about it mechanically, <clears throat> as you, you say sometimes uh, in response to my reasoning, it's, it's checking boxes, right? So Correct. I guess I'm just wired to think about the mental state first. And it all goes back to the initial conversation and the exchange or the colloquy between the, the, the messenger and the recipient. And I think there's two prongs or components to that. How did the recipient uh, assess the information is very, very relevant. And so, too, is the speaker's intent and whether they actually intended. And it's a very, very fine line and a major point of contention, Mitch, but you're right to point that out because the answer is that uh, threats or interference can come in thinly veiled messages, um, or secretive messages, or more subtle messages. And so that's why, again, I think many times people are just puzzled. Why do they care about what seem to be, quote-unquote, innocuous statements? Uh, because it to build a case, as you've helped educate us over the years, you have to connect every one of these dots. And there's rarely a just pristine, clean set of facts with videotapes and and written backup and witnesses. I mean, the, the putting together a very complicated set of facts is going to have to be with some less than perfect, indication and you have to do a little bit of the reading of the tea leaves and of course that's why you end up in a jury trial of letting them be the what we call the trier of facts but but I would on that point I would say that is why when the president came back out on television and voluntarily his own words said I fired Comey over the Russia thing that those words as as vague as they may seem, have to become part of this discussion. Did that or did that not indicate the president's intent as you've described it? Because without that intent, the whole thing falls apart. That's true, Mitch, but let's frame the language. The Russian thing. You see where I'm going? Go how, ahead. I know. This is why I want how, you. This is what I think we how, all need to struggle with. <laughs> yeah, so it's... it's uh, it's perfectly ambiguous, isn't it? 
if you are defending and making an argument that you had no specific intent to obstruct or to steer an investigation, the claim would be, all I said is that Russian thing, and it's left out there for interpretation. Right, so right. those who are courting the theory that that's evidence of steering an investigation will make an argument that there's only one way to interpret those words, the Russian thing. And then the counter to that is that it's simply uh, categorically ambiguous, and there's no way to prove that there was specific intent to intermeddle uh, based on that only. But of course, Mitch, we can't leave out the prolific tweets, right? Oh, it's exhausting to think <laughs> I mean, about. <laughs> but I, I mean, was trying geez, so hard not to have to go down that. But okay, you're right. The prolific but, but tweet it, also becomes it's evidence of the actor, right? It's evidence, right? I mean, it is. <laughs> it, so any any kind, any time. Uh, the, the messenger pushes send or tweet. I'm not a tweeter, so I'm not using the right terminology. But anytime the author or composer of a, a tweeted message sends something out, by law, that, that likely, very likely qualifies as an admission. And, and it's admissible in court. And what I don't understand is being surrounded by lawyers... One would hope intelligent, competent lawyers and advisors, why any client in this case would not have been advised about that over and over again to realize the, the impact that those are your words. As, as I think, I don't know if you said it or some, another trial lawyer I heard say it, envision those words projected up on a screen that's about 20 feet wide by 10 feet high for the jury and the whole world to see. Sounds like something I would say. It does, doesn't it? We're going out on a break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law over Voice America Radio. When we come back, we will continue our discussion on obstruction of justice. Don't go away. We'll be back after this short break. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties 
and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are continuing our discussion on the concept of obstruction of justice. And Mitch, you wanted to introduce uh, a different facet to this uh, law. I know it's and, and all of this at, at the risk of making it more confusing because we're certainly trying to make it more easy to understand. Let me just apply this concept of obstruction of justice to another narrative that's going on. Uh, as you mentioned in the opening, the, the president evidently shared uh, secret information with the Russians in a meeting at the White House, and that raised a huge hue and cry politically, particularly since it appears that the origin of that uh, secret information, another country had not given permission for it to be shared. Now, so the, so the first question is, the president says, uh, I... I I'm allowed to say that, and there's not a law against it. And I think I agree with him 100% on that. The president evidently has complete authority to declassify, even if it's on the fly, uh, in the middle of a conversation, the president has the authority to do that. Okay, so let's set that aside. No illegal activity by the president in discussing top-secret information with Russians. He has the authority, the right to make that judgment call. What concerned me, and this brings us back to the conversation today, is there was one story that said that, and I'm quoting this from the news article, senior White House officials appeared to recognize quickly that Trump had overstepped and moved to contain the potential fallout. They asked that aspects of the discussion be stricken from the internal memos and for the full transcript to be limited to a small circle of recipients, efforts to prevent secretive, sensitive details from being disseminated or leaked. So there's a question where the original conversation wasn't illegal, but if in an official capacity, workers employees of the president, employees of the executive, then modified transcripts of an official meeting 
And then if they subsequently gave those modified transcripts to an investigative body, such as the Senate or the House Investigative Committee or the Department of Justice, there again, the specter of obstruction of justice comes up, even though the original activity was not illegal, to obstruct an official investigation with intent raises those questions. So do you think I've gone too far on that, or do you think that's an uh, appropriate question to raise in that scenario? It is appropriate, and I'm glad that you used the word specter or, or what I'll add, optics. The optics are certainly bad, but that's dramatically different than there being compelling or admissible evidence to support that kind of wrongdoing. But what you've done, Mitch, by introducing that is uh, given uh, me a chance to talk about some of the tampering aspects, uh, tampering with witnesses, or in this case, it would be tampering or altering a record, as you've indicated. So the record, the written um, memorialization of some statements that are given in an official capacity, are, they're reduced to writing, and if there were directives given or requests given to go back and, as you indicated, strike, and I think you're right, that is the allegation, strike certain portions of that document, there is language, statutory language, federally, that actually uh, criminalizes that kind of conduct. And it would be altering uh, or preventing the production of a record or a document. And then there's um, a companion code section within the same statute that relates to destroying or mutilating documentation. And again, there's an intent built, built in there, Mitch, and that is uh, with the goal of deceiving or acts of deception. Yeah, so I think there's... The, the concern I have is that there seems to be a lack of understanding, a lack of, of legal advice, of legal oversight in many of these activities. You know, a relatively junior person may or may not know if they're instructed to modify the transcript of a meeting, the effect of it. They might not even know where that transcript is going to be used. So in that case, it might fail, an obstruction of justice charge against that individual might fail because it lacks a couple of the elements you and I talked about. Uh, certainly they have the intent to change, but if they don't know that the use is going to be for an official activity, then at least their best defense would be, uh, I'm, I'm just the secretary. I, you know, I was told to redo this. I didn't know who was going to read it. I didn't know Congress was going to use it. And that would be probably your best evidence to, to defend that individual. But if they actually know why, why they're doing it and why why it's being changed and who might be reading it, the individual could be at risk. And when you've brought up records, let's talk for a moment these contempt about these contemporaneous... Let me add something. Oh, okay, go ahead. Because, you know, it's not just no, it's should have known in oh. many cases. So that's a subtle point, but if somebody's in a position where they should know that they're engaging in deceptive conduct, I think there's ways to still present that as a means of proving the intent component. Because as we've said many times before, if you really think about it, how do you prove that somebody had the specific intent? The answer is it's usually 
uh, done by circumstantial evidence, the use of inferences. And one of the inferences that could be used, and it's often compelling, is that the person that acquiesced or agreed to alter a document should have known that that document was ultimately going to, to a, a, let's say, a tribunal such as, uh, uh, or an assembly such as Congress. Right. So, so let's talk about documentation and circumstantial evidence, because I'm going to come right back into your wheelhouse, because I know you've dealt with, with this issue in your career many times, uh, dealing with police officers and other officials. Why is it so important that James Comey made contemporaneous notes about his meetings, and why would those notes have any legal weight whatsoever? Ah, uh, that's. <laughs> a good I knew you were going to like this. You have only just, taught evidence for how many years? I mean, this is I know, wheelhouse. It it is so for the dessert portion of the of the program. Yeah, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for teeing that up. So the the notes that are taken contemporaneously by Comey, or were taken, uh, those are considered uh, accurate reflections of an event that took place at the time. So what it raises is the potential application of what uh, many know as the hearsay rule. So hearsay is an out-of-court statement offered for the truth of the matter, uh, but there are very often exceptions to that. So Comey's written reflections that are reduced to a writing, if they are introduced into evidence, there needs to be an offer of proof. So, in other words, why does that not violate the hearsay rule? Well, if there are true reflections of a, let's say, a telephonic communication, uh, and they're written at or near the time, then there's a basis by which they can come in. Uh, as contemporaneous notes or prior recollect, sorry, prior recollection uh, recorded, prior recorded recollection. So there's a means by which that can come in, and you're spot on to say that they're they're going to be important. And and if you the official observe. Uh, what do they call it? Like, an, is, is the word official observer? I mean, that's why police officers, people who are by the nature of their job, trained to take notes and to record immediately after an event. So the the notes that a police officer takes after he's in, interviewed a witness or after he's been at a crime scene, uh, I've seen they're actually allowed to be referenced in court. Right, they can read those notes, and most of the time, that type of evidence would never be allowed in court. So, a, a police officer or a trained FBI agent aren't they in a special status when it comes to the ability to use those notes or to bring that in as evidence around the hearsay rule? They they can be sometimes, Mitch. Typically, police reports are hearsay documents. The report itself does not come in, but okay. the out of court statements that are reflected or documented in the report. They can come in, and they usually come in by virtue of other hearsay exceptions. And one classic would be a present sense impression or what's called an excited utterance. In other words, an officer is at the scene, takes a statement from somebody who's in an excited state, and that statement then gets reduced to writing. So the means by which it comes in is actually an independent hearsay exception. The report itself rarely, rarely would come in. But you are right that... that uh, 
police officers, law enforcement agents are in a position where they very, very often do, of course, document out-of-court statements, but there's usually an independent basis by which those out-of-court statements come. So now we come back to a, another tweet of the president, which comes into play in this conversation of, you know, uh, Comey better, uh, better hope there are no tapes of our meeting before he starts leaking. And that then, again, goes right to the question we're going to, that if you have a private meeting between two individuals, it's going to be a he said, he said argument. Somebody's going to have to decide, well, who's telling the truth here? On, on one case, the, the contemporaneous memos of Comey will be put together, uh, put forward as an enhancement of Comey's testimony, because clearly it's going to be his testimony itself that's going to be looked to as the initial response. But likewise, since the president is highly unlikely to be put on the stand for anything in this type of a, of a hearing, if there are tapes of those meetings, they are eligible to be, uh, to be subpoenaed by, by the tribunal as evidence of the meeting content, right? They, they are indeed, Mitch, and you've tripped the wire again on another evidentiary issue, and that is the best evidence rule. And in other words, uh, the actual tape recordings would be the best evidence. And so what we go back to, we hearken back to the Nixon days when there we, the shocking discovery that there were indeed tapes of all these conversations, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court to see whether those tapes were protected by an executive privilege under which they could not be seized from the sitting president, and the Supreme Court said, hand them over. Yeah, no, yeah, that's no. right. And then the other one that's more recent or of more recent vintage would be the Scooter Libby uh, and Valerie Plame uh, case. And I can't recall whether or not, I know it was an obstruction of justice issue and it related to uh, lying to a grand jury and FBI agents, but I cannot recall whether or not tapes were involved in that. I, I seem to, do you remember? Gosh, now that you mentioned, I was trying to remember whether there's tapes or just records of conversations that became yeah, the issue. I think it may have been written records. Yeah, written records. But this, the same concept applies. And so I think as we, as we try to wrap all of this up, we, we certainly don't have the answers. We have not tried to, to provide answers to these questions. What I hope we've done in the course of the conversation today is to help individuals parse out the various pieces to this this challenging question of what are the role of the individual players what how does this fit within the federal law how will this evidence be proven and why is this topic of obstruction of justice so important and i think i'll just wrap up by saying that it it has it is fairly clear that the issue of obstruction of justice if all of these really challenging issues can be proven in, in a proper tribunal, that does raise, as Stephen said, the I word. Impeachment requires the president to be found guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors, and obstruction of justice is one of the crimes that could raise to that level. That's why we should all be paying attention to this. You've been listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Stephen, thank you for another great conversation about these challenging issues. As I You're remind welcome. every week, 
You can hear a repeat of today's program on wagnerandwinnick.com or voiceamerica.com. As we remind you, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, 
strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 